0: of evangelical Christians that I gleaned in just a few minutes on the uh, Times Times the Guardian and Richard Dawkins' latest book respectively hostility and anger and even fear of evangelical Christians it seems to me is mainstream now and and Those reactions seem to become more and more vehement as each year passes by. Evangelical Christians are viewed as wild-eyed fanatics, obsessively repressive, horribly bigoted, determined, in the eyes of some commentators at least, to do for Britain what the Taliban did for Afghanistan. And to be honest, as we've studied Matthew chapters 8 and 9 so far, I think you could be excused for thinking that perhaps Jesus was trying to create that kind of person. I mean, his calls to follow him, we we saw, if you've, if you've been here over the last few weeks, his calls were absolutely uncompromising. Remember, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head, in chapter 8, verse 20. If you follow me, you've got to give up everything, every security, he's saying. Or, um, uh, to another man, he says, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Leave your family, he says, and follow me. Or in that boat we saw last week when the waves were about to own overwhelm um, the, the disciples, um, Jesus gets up and rebukes them for what, to be honest, ought to looks to me like legitimate fear, rebukes them for their cowardice. You of little faith, why are you so afraid? Why are you such cowards, he says. So he wants absolutely uncompromising commitment to him and even if the most overwhelming forces are stacked against his followers, he wants them not to fear, but to simply trust him. He's creating a scary group of people, isn't he? And he backs all of that up up with with, with, um, extravagant demonstrations of his power, healing people, driving out demons, calming even the storm, and then supremely claiming that he, and he alone, has the authority to forgive Sins. If you want to be with God, if you want to go to heaven, if you want eternal life, then I'm the one to come to, he says. It's not, not, not surprising that um, the world around is a little bit anxious about those peop- people who follow those teachings. They are deeply Radical, But the kind of community that Jesus intends to create is a million miles diametrically opposed from the, the Christian Taliban description that uh, some like to throw around. And that's what Matthew seems to want to try to, to show us next. He has portrayed the unstoppable power of Jesus and the 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 unparalleled calls of Jesus to discipleship. But now he wants to show us the kind of community that Jesus is creating. And it is far from being bigoted and um, uh, uh, backward looking. It is actually incredibly free. And in many, many dimensions, new. That's what I want us to see this morning. Remember the structure of Matthew, uh, Matthew 8 and 9. We get sets of three miracles followed by um, a passage on discipleship and then three more miracles. So now we're in the second passage on discipleship. Verses uh, 9 to 17 of Matthew, And the first thing that Matthew wants to portray uh, in verses 9 to 13 is, is uh, a new community. And he does it by introducing us to Matthew. As Jesus went on from there, verse 9, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth, follow me he told him Matthew got up and followed him. Almost certainly this Matthew is actually the Matthew who wrote the Gospel. So this is his his little bit of autobiography in the middle of, um, uh, uh, of the Gospel. And we are told he is a tax collector, or at least he sits at the tax collector's booth. Now, we need to understand a little bit of the cultural background to understand this. I mean, we're a little bit. Suspicious of tax collectors in our culture, aren't we? They, 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 were, they, they were infinitely more so. Because the Romans had a system of what's called tax farming. That is, they would, they would establish a total amount of tax that they wanted to get from a region and make a person responsible for um, finding that amount of money from that region. And they would give them powers to levy money from the locals. But they wouldn't ask any questions if the person levied a little bit more for their own personal profit. Indeed, they expected them to do that. That's how their lackeys made a living. Not surprisingly, then, that tax collecting became horribly corrupt. They uh, not only levied enough to pay their, their bosses, but they levied enormous amounts in addition and became fabulously wealthy, and of course radically hated one uh, Bible dictionary, for instance, says. A Jew, entering the customs service, cut himself off from decent society. He was disqualified from being a judge or even a witness in court, excommunicated from the synagogue. The members of his family were considered to be equally tarnished because of, uh, because of their exactions and extortions. Customs officials were in the same legal category as murderers and robbers. I just can't think of a parallel example. You know, because they were, they were rich. Perhaps a banker who happens to live in a working class uh, housing estate um, might be treated with the same uh, degree of hostility. Probably, um, perhaps the closest we might get, get to is a, a pimp running his prostitutes. Absolutely despised and hated by people, deeply admired, in sin at every level, actually making quite a nice living for himself though. That's Matthew and amazingly Jesus calls him. It was always expected that when the Messiah came, the Old Testament always taught that the Messiah came and would care for the poor of the land But those were the humble, ordinary, godly peasants who often got trampled on. This chap's far from poor. And he's doing the trampling. And yet Jesus calls him too. More, More than that, it is astonishing that Matthew responds so quickly. He just gets up and leaves his tax collector's booth. Now that is walking away from his whole source of income, his whole lifestyle up to now. When the fishermen left their nets and followed Jesus, frankly they could go back and fish again. They did, it records it in the Gospels. But when Matthew walked out of his tax collector booth, he knew from that moment he couldn't go back. Someone would immediately fill the space and anyway... He was walking away from a deeply tarnished lifestyle. He's leaving everything. And then the surprise goes on. Uh, Far from uh, immediately taking a vow of absolute purity and uh, cutting himself off from his old associates, he gathers his old associates and gives them a party. There in verse 10. Um, Many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him. But more surprising than that, if you, look, if you see that in verse 10, Jesus is there at the heart of the party. He's having dinner at Matthew's house when all of these people gather. You know, this is, this is shock after shock after shock after shock. Who is Jesus inviting him in to be his friends. It's not the righteous. It's not just the poor. It's certainly not the traditionally religious people. At one level it's anyone. At another level it's, it's, it's important for us to note again and again, it is precisely people whom you would not expect to be part of a religious group see we 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 mustn't get it wrong it's not that uh, jesus only went for the poor and only went for the for the outcasts he's just uh, met for instance a a, uh, a wealthy powerful centurion who has exercised faith right next to a poor, despised leper. The church from the beginning, the disciples of Jesus from the beginning, were from all backgrounds, all kinds of people, all kinds of situations, gathered together. The Pharisees, of course, uh, who have a different vision for what the people of God should be like, are horrified. Verse 11, when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? You see, they thought people needed to make themselves pure before they could dare walk through the door into the community of God. Jesus says, come through into relationship with me And I will make you pure through my love for you. Or as he puts it in verse 12, Jesus says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. He has precisely come to call people who recognise their failures, who recognise their weaknesses. He is a doctor. He will help them and transform them as he forgives them. But those who don't think they need a doctor, well, he hasn't come for them. And that includes the Pharisees. Indeed, he's biting with the Pharisees. When he says, go and learn what this means, that was was actually a rather imperious phrase that the Pharisees themselves used to learn of ignorant people who came and asked them questions about the Bible. Go and learn, they would say, and give them a Bible passage to meditate on. And Jesus has turned the tables on them. You go and learn, he says, what Hosea 6 verse 6 means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. God's always been a God of mercy. God has always been a God who is close to the contrite and the brokenhearted. This is the one I esteem. He who is contrite and broken hearted and trembles at my word, says Isaiah. That's the community. That Jesus is Forming a community in which enemies are united. Uh, There's every evidence, for instance, that one of the taxation, part of the taxation that uh, Matthew administered, was taxation on fish. He's going joining a group of disciples who are about fifty percent fishermen. unites those people, people who recognise that they are sinners in need of forgiveness. He unites those people into a new community where mercy reigns. That is fundamentally the people we are called to be. Yes, we do have moral standards. They are very, very important and we cannot walk away from them. But we are not pharisaical bigots. If we're followers of Jesus, we cannot be. There must be mercy. There must be a sense of our own weaknesses and failings. There must be a sense of accepting all kinds of people amongst us. One of the uh, tragic side effects of the the battles that are going on in our society over homosexuality at the moment is that your average person who is struggling with homosexual feelings fears even to go to an evangelical church, let alone explain what they're struggling with now that is a that, that is a false picture that has been painted of evangelical churches again and again but we must make absolutely sure it does not become true. I'm really really excited about what God is doing amongst us. Variety of different people. People, frankly, you would have nothing to do with each other were it not for your common faith, would you? Let's be honest. And people whom I see are deeply aware of their failings, deeply conscious of need for God's mercy. That is what qualifies us to be here. We need to stand for that and stand for that clearly. If there is anyone here who thinks, I don't know what I'm doing here because, frankly, my life's a mess. These people all seem to have their, 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 their lives sorted. You don't know. And the reason you're here It's because at the heart of what we stand for is the Jesus who loves mercy, the doctor who comes for sinners. You're welcome. New community then. Um, Jesus is creating absolutely radically committed to him, but because of that, absolutely radically committed to mercy. Um, and uh, to uniting diverse people. Then, um, uh, a little more briefly, those people have new habits. This uh, Matthew tells us about this by describing, in fact, a um, a bit of confusion that comes across John the Baptist and his disciples. Verse fourteen. John's disciples came and asked him, how is it that we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Pharisees fasted routinely. Mondays and Thursdays they fasted. And it seems John the Baptist's disciples had had followed that or a a similar practice. Um, And they're confused by the fact that Jesus' disciples don't seem to be bothering with fasting at all. What's going on? Verse 15, Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, then they will fast. Jesus is making amazing statements here. First of all, he's calling himself the bridegroom. The Old Testament always expected that God would arrive one day as the bridegroom for the bride, his people, but now Jesus has arrived and says, I'm him. And his presence, he says, means people must celebrate, like, like, like in any wedding. You you, you know, don't mourn on a wedding day. You celebrate. He says, a time will come when I am taken away. Perhaps this is the first prediction of his death that he is aware of. Then they will mourn, he says. Then when people no longer enjoy my presence, they will mourn. But for now, they must celebrate. You see, it's very interesting, you see. Far from seeking wild-eyed fanatics, Jesus seeks people who will live lives of celebration. Today, we live... in a a slightly ambiguous relationship to that story because we live, actually, in the time when Jesus has been taken away. He has ascended into heaven. He is not, we are not absolutely in his presence. And therefore the, 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 the unimpeded celebration that he expected his disciples to have in his physical presence is no longer exactly what our calling is. It's very clear, for instance, in the rest of the New Testament that the disciples did fast at times. In the book of Acts it's recorded, for instance. But There is an ambiguity about it because when he went away, Jesus said at the end of Matthew's Gospel, surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And so we live in this current age with Jesus' absence. He's not physically here like he was in the Gospels. And Jesus' presence. We know that he is there even if unseen. And somehow authentic Christian living lives between these two then. Not perhaps fasting as those did who were longing for the day when God would decisively intervene, decisively fulfil his his purposes because he has done that now in sending Jesus but still, to a certain extent, longing for that final day when God creates a new heaven and a new earth. This is our calling. To be people whose lives are infused, yes, with a degree of pain and the fasting that that represents, but fundamentally with celebration. Because Jesus has come. He died on the cross for our sins. He has defeated Satan. And it's interesting, not many of us even begin to think about the fasting side of Christian life. Perhaps we should. But not fasting as a routine. Fasting... In the, in the rest of the New Testament seems to be associated with particular times of need for guidance or, or help, because the routine is celebrating Jesus. Jesus came to create new habits, habits of the heart that rejoice profoundly in what he has done. He has come and completed our salvation. You are secure if you are a believer. There should be a sense of celebration about that. And then Jesus seems to extend it and I, I've uh, um, put it as a, as a separate point um, to try to bring out what Jesus is saying in verses um, uh, 16 and, and 17. He says that that new community of included people and that, that those new habits of celebration are going to have to be in, within new structures. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, a garment, for the, the patch will... <laughs> there you are, I'm still politically in my... <laughs> the patch will pull away Gordon Brown should have read that Uh, the patch will pull away from the garment making the tear worse neither do men pour new wine into old wineskins if they do the skins will burst the wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined no, you pour new wine into new wineskins and both are preserved he uses two simple analogies that they would know from their life to show what he's talking about. The first is um, the way you patch a piece of cloth, okay? We live in the days when cloth is pre-shrunk, uh, basically. But if you make cloth before it gets washed, it, 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 or when it gets first washed, it shrinks significantly. So if you put an unwashed bit of new cloth on, on the, um, the hole in your jeans, then you will find that that new cloth actually shrinks and makes another tear. Of course, if you're under 30, you rejoice in that because that's how you like to wear your clothes. But um, um, for old fogies like me and Jesus, that is not a good thing. Okay. And then the other thing from, from their, their story is, of course, um, wine was kept in, in leather uh, uh, skins and uh, as the, the, the leather got older it became brittle and so on. It was fine for holding the wine that, it was, originally, that was originally put in it but put new, still fermenting wine into one of those uh, skins and try and put a, put, a, put a lid on it and it will just burst that skin. They knew that. And the skin will be useless and the wine will be lost. What's he trying to say? He's trying to say, this new community, this new lifestyle that I am creating, a lifestyle of grace and of mercy and of celebration, it will not fit within the old Judaism. It just won't. You're going to have to do away with all those Ha- structures of society and of life to include, to, to, to be able to contain what I am doing. And that's what happened. The habits and the, 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 the structures of um, a Jewish way of life um, withered away and the church became a new global community of people. And that applies again and again and again though. Because from now, from, from that moment on, um, the, the new church was continually being renewed by the Holy Spirit. And human beings, of course, were continually trying to set up structures that would work and then finding in the next generation that those structures just just didn't work. And so the church has actually been a, a, a constantly moving, shifting thing ever since then. It is the nature of what God does. Martin Luther once said that no work of God lasts for more than about 40 years when it needs the renewing work of God again. Church is always only one generation from disappearing. It has been for 2000 years now. The church then needs to be flexible. It needs to respond to this dynamic life that is being poured into it by Jesus by his spirit. Maudlin Road has very much been part of that. 150 years ago, um, Maudlin Road started as cottage meetings. You know, before people were talking about house churches, this was a house church. Um, 130 years ago, they got uh, they 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 got their first building. Building's been through several. um, uh, iteration six years ago, we decided to move out of the building into, into this. And um, every time these changes happen, you, you sort of feel this, this could be a cataclysm. You know, the structures are all falling away and it'll die. It doesn't die. Because the Spirit of God is there. And uh, uh, at the moment, the elders are reviewing some pretty fundamental things about the, uh, about the life of the church, particularly stimulated by um, uh, the possibility of, of uh, uh, Richard and Lily um, moving on. We're asking fundamental questions. What is a church? How can we best reach our neighbours? This sort of mosaic of a, of a community with lots of different sub, sub, sub-communities. Should we think about planting a new church or new churches? Should we, should we, should we adjust our, our life in certain ways? There are fundamental principles that are set down in Scripture but always the new wine goes best in new wineskins. That is the kind of community that Jesus is creating. When you read some of the uh, polemic against the church, you read that this nasty group fueled by anger that 's one of the things they often speak of fueled by anger is taking it wants to take us back to the old ways there 's also if you uh, um, read the newspapers. There's also another strand of articles that come up every now and again. I've read a few of them over the last few years, where people say, "I decided I'd go to one of the go and uh, go and see one of these funny, weird evangelical churches, and I discovered normal people who were open to discussing issues and were not wild-eyed bigots at all." We need to be what actually up and down the country evangelical churches are. We need to be overtly that. We need to live it. How awful if someone actually never came through that door or only once came through that door because they thought, I'm just too bad to follow Jesus. Well, if Matthew could, you can. How awful if we started to live lives which were dominated by rules and disciplines and rather than celebration. How awful if we got stuck in a pattern of the way things must happen, the way we've always done these things. And we're unable to respond to what the Spirit is doing. I speak to you as one who is just delighted that I think you are people who make a good stab at being this kind of new community. Keep at it. And if you don't yet belong to that new community, what is stopping you? Jesus says, come, follow me.